You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. We exist to see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied, all to the glory of God. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com. As we start here, I just want to begin with a uh, true story. Uh, About a week ago, just over a week ago, I was reading my Bible at a coffee shop, and a man asked me if the book I was reading was very good. I told him it's the best book I've ever read, and we launched into an extended hour and a half conversation. As we talked, I learned about this man's uh, atheistic views, although very inconsistent, to just the way he tried to explain life. In the process, it became clear this man was suppressing the truth. Uh, Pastor Trevor has talked to us about that a little bit in Romans chapter 1, where suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, keeping that spring down. I even told him as much. Just, man, I've been learning about this, and I just see that, man, you, you are suppressing the truth. It was obvious. Every objection he had against Christianity was indefensible. It was simply wrong. It was not even accurate. Yet because he was unwilling to believe the truth, there was this, there was this void. Uh, he needed to believe something. So in order to quiet his conscience, he filled that void with misinformation. Over time, it seems, he became overconfident in his defense of falsehood. The layers of lies were so thick that the truth just wouldn't penetrate. He'd created a self-made framework of faulty ideas and half-truths in order to justify his beliefs. But in doing so, he'd actually built up this resistance to anything that contradicted his views. In the end, his problem was that he did not have an accurate view of his sin, of his God, or of his future. He was blinded by selfish ambition and worldly philosophy. His hard-hearted stubbornness produced a polite arrogance and a veiled judgmentalism. He thought of himself as a curious truth seeker, right? You know, your truth for you and my truth for me. But in reality, he was actually more of a smug, self-proclaimed expert, vulnerable to hypocrisy and a victim of his own delusion. I I tell you that story because as we'll see in just a, a moment here, It's kind of a modern-day example of the type of person Paul had in mind when he wrote Romans chapter 2. As I said, Pastor Trevor's already walked us through the first chapter of Romans. If you're new or if you just need a review, let's quickly just think about where we've come. Romans is a sort of systematic theology of the gospel. It's methodically written. There's this argument and purpose which God, through Paul, is aiming at. After kind of an extended introduction in chapter 1, the theme is given in verses 16 and 17. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So there we have it. The theme of Romans is actually the righteousness of God. That is the righteousness that is from God and for godliness. At the center of the gospel is this amazing truth that by faith, we can receive God's righteousness as our own. We can be declared not guilty. And we can increasingly become more and more like Christ in our daily life. This is truly good news. But here's the thing. The gospel is not worship-compelling, life-transforming good news 
if you don't recognize the depth of your depravity and the, the misery of your destiny apart from God's grace. Thankfully, as, as sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, which means the more convinced you are of your sinfulness and the more convinced you are of your just condemnation, the more precious God's grace is to you. That in part, I think, is why Romans has over 50 verses that carefully and convincingly explain that all people are sinful, guilty, and deserving of death. It's not until the end of chapter 3 that we're told that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The past two Sundays, we've heard about this gospel necessity due to sinful rebellion. Sin demands God's wrath. And sinners deserve and display God's wrath. The more we sin, the more we're given over to sin, and the more we experience the misery of sin. As we transition to chapter 2, we continue the theme of God's wrath against sin. Only now it's not directed at pagan rebellion, but more at heartless religion. The self-righteous moralist may not sin as openly or outwardly, but he too must recognize the depth of his or her depravity. Now, before you uh, kind of step back and say, well, okay, I, I, I got some people in mind who I can apply this sermon to, uh, consider that all of us have a fallen tendency to criticize everyone except ourselves. Uh, very often, we ignore the plank in our own eyes and we, we point out the speck of our brother. We give ourselves the benefit of the doubt, uh, but maybe we assume the worst of other people. We think our motives are pure, while the intentions of others might be suspect. We're harsh and exacting in our judgment of other people, but lenient towards ourselves. We talk about the disgraceful behaviors, again, of other people, but our similar sins, they seem less serious. We may even feel a haughty satisfaction from condemning the faults of others, that we excuse in ourselves. I mean, let's face it. We sometimes are deceived by our own sinfulness, and we can become blind to our hypocrisy and double standards. God has a word for you and me. It's, nece it's a necessary course correction and a life-giving word as long as we receive it with faith and humility. God's wrath is real, and it's severe, but we escape it when we take refuge in Christ, and I trust our text will lead us there here this morning. According to this passage, to avoid God's wrath, I must see clearly. We need to remove the blinders so we can accurately see our sin, our God, and our future. He does this at conversion, but He also does it as a part of our sanctification. And of course, this happens as we look through the lens of the gospel. The gospel allows us to see clearly. So that's where we're going here this morning. Let me pray for us, and we'll get right into the text. Uh, Father, thank you for your self-revelation, uh, for giving us uh, the Word of God, which gives us understanding of your character, of your plan of redemption, of our need for grace. Uh, thank you that you've created us in your image uh, with, with minds that can think and process. Though, though sinful, they can be renewed by the Spirit so that we can understand your Word so that it can be applied to our lives. God, we, we just pray 
that as we think through uh, what your message for us today from the book of Romans, that you would press it upon our hearts. You know each individual here, you know his or her needs to be encouraged or challenged or, or shaken or uh, whatever is needed, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would direct them accordingly and your Word would accomplish its good purpose in each of us for your glory and for our greater joy. Uh, so we commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. We're considering three necessities to avoid God's wrath, and the first is this. You must have an accurate view of your sin. We see this in verses 1 to 3. You must have an accurate view of your sin. But wait a minute. I thought sin provokes God's wrath. How is it that an accurate view of my sin helps me avoid God's wrath? I'm glad you asked. These verses teach us that seeing and admitting your sin is the starting place for genuine repentance. The more you see your sin, the more you see your need for grace. Look at the first five words of verse 1. It says, therefore, you have no excuse. We'll come back to that word, therefore, but first notice the pronoun change. Up to this point, it has been them and those. Here it says, therefore, you, but in chapter 1, it was, again, they and them. It was those people outside of the church. Uh, Romans 1, 18 to 32 was especially talking about unbelieving Gentiles. Uh, Gentiles are without excuse for their sinful rebellion because what can be known about God is plain to them, and yet they exchange the glory of God for false worship. In response, God's wrath takes the form of abandonment, giving them up to intensifying sin and corruption. Now, now the Jew could hear that and be tempted to give a hearty amen. What else would you expect? I mean, naturally, the pagans are under God's wrath. God's wrath is for them. It's, God's wrath is for those people. We understand that God will judge the Denchiles. After all, they're not His chosen people. They're sinners, ignorant of God's law, without God's covenants, and I don't like it to, to say it this way, but they're beneath us. I mean, we are better than them. Let's just say it like it is. The Jew could have this kind of self-righteous, judging attitude towards the Gentiles. I mean, you see, first century Jews hated Gentiles. that They were unclean and unfit for the kingdom of God. It was easy for the Jew to hear that God's wrath abides on the Gentiles. So, in chapter 2, God directed the Apostle Paul to craft a careful line of reasoning, especially focused on the Jews. It's applicable to everyone, but it's customized for the Jews. Because God is an impartial judge, and the Jews are not exempt from His judgment. They, like the Gentiles, have no excuse. So Paul switches it up. Them and, them and they turns into you addressing the Jews. Now we need to return to that word therefore, linking the two chapters together. Uh, we understand that both Jews and Gentiles are sinful, uh, but how does the sinfulness of Gentiles render the Jews without excuse? I don't understand. What's the logic here? Right? That's what he's saying. Chapter 1, the, the Gentiles are without excuse they are guilty. And then he says, therefore, you also Jews, you're without excuse. Well, what's the connection? When you read, 
When you read verse 1, perhaps it's tempting to think that Jews are without excuse because they judge, and their judging is sinful. But that's not exactly Paul's logic. In fact, the Jews could rightly appeal to God's judgment against the Gentiles. It's just and good to, for God to, to judge the rebellion of the pagans. That, that is an, an accurate. In fact, I mean, Paul himself was just the one who pointed that out. So what's going on? Look again at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For, here's the explanation, in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Well, why does that condemn them? Because, there's the reason, you, the judge, practice the very same things. The Jews have no excuse because they practice the very same sins they judge the Gentiles for practicing. Their judgments are, in fact, self-condemning. Their self-righteous judging backfires because of their hypocrisy. I mean, you can think about it this way. Imagine if I told you that I'm really strong. I mean, it's not that hard to imagine, but just imagine for a minute here. And I said to, to, I said to you, to be considered really strong, a person needs to bench press 300 pounds. I mean, it, really, if you're going to be considered strong, 300 pounds is the minimum. Now, you can only bench press 50 pounds, so I mock you for being weak. But as it turns out, I also can only bench press 50 pounds. So my, by my own standard, I am weak and pathetic. That's kind of what's going on here, right? By their own standard, the Jews are judging the Gentiles based on God's standard, but they're failing to apply that same standard to themselves. They point out the sins of the Gentiles deserving God's judgment, and in doing so, inadvertently condemn themselves because they practice the same judgment-deserving sins. Don't miss that this would have been strong and a shocking indictment. This would have been a dramatic blow to the Jews. The Jews were told that they are not better than the Gentiles. In fact, they are just as sinful. When it says they practice the same thing, it's probably in reference to the, the sins listed in 129 to 32, although it may, may allude to some kind of heart-level failure, uh, like what Jesus talked about on the Sermon on the Mount, right? You say you keep the law, but you, you fail to keep it in your heart. Either way, both groups have knowledge of God. Both contradict their knowledge by their behavior, only the Gentiles sin and approve of others, while the Jews sin and condemn others. By way of application for you and I, I think instead of this Jew-Gentile comparison, we can experience sort of a world versus the church comparison. We know the world sins, and we know the world approves of others sinning, but too often in the church, we, too, we look very similar to the world while we judge and criticize their sinfulness. We can speak against the moral decline of our culture, the crazy liberal policies, and almost universal acceptance of abortion. We can decry the divorce rate or promiscuity or the, the blatant sexual agenda or the gender confusion or the destruction of the family. We can point out the many sins of the world deserving God's judgment. And in the right context, in the right way, we ought to acknowledge that all sin does deserve God's wrath. But the question becomes, do you, do I, have an accurate view of my own sin? 
It's easy to see the faults of others, but do you see your sin? Here's how you know. Do you talk more about or think more about the corruption around you or the corruption within you? Do the sins of the world seem more serious than your own? Does your sin regularly grieve you, humble you, and remind you of your need for grace? Do you have a habit of admitting and confessing your sin to God and to others? Our sin may or may not be as public or pronounced, but it's still sin, it's still serious, and it's still deserving of God's wrath. To avoid God's wrath, you must have an accurate view of your sin. The next two verses drive this this point home even more. Verse 2 says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Paul now identifies with his fellow Jew as if to say, look, look, we both know the Torah. We know that we know God's moral standard, and we know it's just for him to condemn those who sin. We know this, right? When he says the judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things, that, that phrase rightly falls, it's a, maybe a better translation would be it's according to truth. We know that God's judgment is according to truth. It's according to the facts and reality. God is always just, right? Never judges someone who doesn't deserve it. Whenever he judges, it's always just. It's always according to the truth of his character. As educated Jews, we know that God's judgment is based on the facts. He judges the world in righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness, Psalm 9.8, to which the Jew would again respond, yes, of course, God's judgment are just. It's right for him to pour out his wrath on the sinful Gentiles. But then the dagger comes in verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them themselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? The obvious answer is certainly not. We know that God is just, so how can, he, how can you, the Jew, escape his judgment when you can, again, commit the very same sins? The language is emphatic. Do you suppose you will escape? Now, it's possible the Jew could still think, even if I do sin, I'm a child of Abraham. I'm circumcised. I follow the law of Moses. And I'm God's chosen people. But with the rest of chapter 2, Paul will prove the Jews have no saving advantage over the Gentile. They are equally guilty and equally condemned by their sin. For now, verse 3 highlights their inconsistency and their self-deception. Again, they're inconsistent because they commit the same sins, and they're self-deceived because they wrongly think they will escape God's judgment, though they commit the same sins. Three times in these three verses, Paul uses this phrase, practice such things because he wants to direct their attention back to 132. Just before chapter 2, he says, though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. The Jew, the Gentile, all people deserve to die for their sins. The question then is, why is it a universal temptation to exaggerate the faults of others 
while minimizing our own sin, right? We get it. We maybe we don't do it exactly in the same way outlined here, but it, it's just, it feels natural to, for other people's sins to be big and mine to be small. As John MacArthur put it, the secret hope of the hypocrite is that God will somehow judge him by a standard lower than perfect truth and righteousness. He knows enough to recognize the wickedness of his heart, but he hopes vainly that God will judge him in the same superficial way that most others judge him and that he judges himself. He plays a kind of religious charade, wanting to be judged by his appearance rather than by his true character. So, so why, why do we fall into the trap of judging others? Why do we play that religious charade at times? I think there are a lot of reasons, but we often judge others, I think, to avoid responsibility and accountability. There's a, there's a false sense of security and self-righteousness. It's a way to divert attention away from my own guilt and shame. We want to ignore, deny, excuse, or distract from personal sin. Thus, we emphasize the faults of others to discreetly elevate ourselves. Or we point out the sins of others to quiet our insecurities and reassure ourselves that we're not that bad. As long as someone else is worse than me, I'm okay. As long as I meet my self-made standards or basic cultural expectations, I'm okay. If you have kids, you know exactly what this is like, right? You go to uh, your, the brother and sister or siblings or some kind of arguments. Or you go in there and it's always, right, he started it or she started it or he or she did this thing. Their sin is worse, right? We see this. We're no different, though not quite as childish perhaps sometimes. But here's the obvious truth. Judging others as more sinful than you does not remove your guilt. Pointing out the sinfulness of others does not remove your sin. And that's the point. To avoid God's wrath, we must have an accurate view of our own sin because we have no excuses. We escape God's judgment not by convincing ourselves that we're basically good or that we do more good than evil or that we're better than most. No, we escape God's judgment by acknowledging our sin, admitting our guilt, and receiving His kindness. Instead of receiving God's kindness, however, the Jews, the Jews pursue, presumed on it. Thus, the next necessity to avoid God's wrath, and point number two is, you must have an accurate view of your God. You need an accurate view of your sin, but you also need an accurate view of your God. We see this in verse 4. The problem with those whom Paul was writing to was not only that they minimized their sin, but also that they misrepresented God's character. They did not have an accurate view of Him, which made them liable to His judgment. Look at verse 4. Paul asks a poignant follow-up question when he says, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. What does it mean that they presume on the riches of God's kindness? Basically, it means that they consider themselves exempt from God's future judgment because of God's past kindness. I mean, think about Israel's history. God chose them to be a treasured possession. He redeemed them from slavery and made covenants with them. 
He gave them his law, provided a way to atone for sin, revealed his glory to them, promised a Messiah. When they complained in the wilderness, he continued to provide and protect. When they worshiped idols, he continued to forbear and forgive. When they repeatedly rebelled during the judges, he preserved his people and prepared for the Redeemer. When they were disciplined through captivity, he reassured them of his love and his plan for redemption. God's kindness towards his people is rich and deep and long-suffering. The Israelites, however, presumed on it. They looked down on God's kindness and thought little of it. In other words, they took it for granted. It didn't move them or compel them. In fact, that word presume means that they actually despised, scorned, or felt contempt. They spurned God's kindness with their sin instead of savoring it with worship. They presumed God's kindness not knowing, the text says, the purpose of it. That's not to say they were blameless or or ignorant. This is an inexcusable, blameworthy oversight. It's a willful refusal to recognize that God's kindness both affords the opportunity for and summons them to repentance. This is well established in Judaism. The, The Jews, the Israelites, they would have known that God's kindness was meant to lead to repentance, only they applied it to pagans, not to themselves. So God was kind to the Israelites, but they disregarded his kindness. And contrary to popular Jewish belief, they will not be treated differently than the Gentiles. His kindness is not an automatic way to escape judgment. He doesn't indefinitely overlook sin or excuse from accountability. And his kindness in this life does not prevent his judgment in the next. Well, unfortunately, this presumptuous view of God is not unique to the Jews. No doubt you and I have received God's kindness. Everyone here, everyone on planet earth has received his common grace, right? The, the breath in our lungs, the blood in our veins, uh, so many areas that we have experienced common grace. As Christians, we know his saving grace, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness, all these things. We understand that in Christ, all our past, present, and future sins are forgiven And we know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and nothing can separate us from his love. But yet, it's still dangerous and foolish to think, I know God will forgive me. Or if God doesn't want me to do this, he'll stop me from from doing it. I wish it wasn't true, but it seems like countless times I've I've counseled those who are, are heading in the wrong direction, that they're willfully choosing sin, And I've pleaded with them to turn from their sin, to repent, to make a different choice. And too often the response is, you know what? I'm going to choose my sin and God will forgive me. Or if he doesn't want me to sin in this way, he'll bring something into my life to to turn me away. Presumptuous. On a smaller scale, you and I can do the same types of things. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance not to a license to sin. It's meant to compel me towards holiness, not entitlement. It's meant to draw me near to God, not drive me towards selfishness. It ought to produce in us a hatred of sin and an unquenchable desire for communion with Christ. It ought to increase our desire to enjoy His goodness. 
Matthew Henry said, there is in every willful sin a contempt for the goodness of God. Too often, we can make assumptions about God's forgiveness, not taking it seriously. God's kindness is meant to lead to repentance. How does God's kindness lead to repentance? And just as important, why does God's kindness not always lead to repentance? Well, let's think a little bit more about God's character, and that'll lead us to seeing how His kindness and His character is meant to lead us to repentance. First of all, God's kindness is further explained as forbearance and patience. Forbearance is God's self-restraint. It's, it's, his, it's His holding back, and patience is His slowness to anger. So together they express this kind of patient withholding of judgment, passing over sin for a season while He waits for repentance. God's kindness, therefore, it's, it's not really in contradiction or it's not in competition with His wrath, right? It's not as though, you know, God is a capricious God and, you know, well, how's He going to wake up this morning? Kind of wrathful or kind of uh, joyful and kind? No, the, His justice and His mercy are not at odds with one another. Instead, they work in tandem alongside all of His perfections. Now, ultimately, all, every part of his character was satisfied at the cross. Also, consider that God is not stubborn or reluctant to be gracious and merciful. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Compassion is his natural inclination. He longs to and loves to lavishly give immeasurable grace. He is, after all, the father of mercies. His wrath, however, must be provoked. His wrath is not his natural inclination. God's anger is provoked. It's provoked when there is sin because it, sin opposes His glory. And sin destroys the object of His love, namely you and me. Which means what God is drawn to most in us is not our loveliness or our righteousness, but rather our unloveliness and, listen to this, our wickedness. God is drawn to us because He sees our pitiful sinfulness, and that draws out His compassion. When we sin or experience suffering, Jesus sympathizes with us, welcomes us to bring our burdens, draws near to us, sustains us, and reassures us of His love. Jesus is not frustrated when we come to Him as His children seeking forgiveness. When we admit that we're weak and needy, He is overjoyed when we come to Him for mercy. It's His deepest desire to comfort and care for us in our time of need. His deepest and strongest affections are reflected in His compassion. The point is, at His core, God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is the portrait of God that leads us to repentance knowing that He is tender like a mother with an infant. Uh, he is fatherly and eagerly and eager to love His children. He is our shepherd who provides and protects and, and enables us to do good things. Uh, consider a couple of New Testament examples from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we don't have time to go in detail, but if you, if you remember that story in Luke 15 about the prodigal son, right? The son uh, talks to his father and shamefully asks for half of his inheritance, or all of his inheritance, half of what would be the total inheritance, and then just go squanders it on sinful living. And 
what, what happens there is the, is the younger brother, he realizes the character of his father. He realizes, my father is gracious and kind and forgiving, and certainly if I return, he will treat me kindly. Uh, this moves the younger brother to repentance, to admit his sin, acknowledge that he had failed and faulted and willingly go to his father. And of course, his father demonstrates this character, runs to him, runs through the city, runs all the way to him and lavishes him with grace and kindness. All while the older brother, which pictures really the, the Jews or the Pharisees, is just scolding and is upset because of the kindness of the father. He scorns and is in contempt towards his father because of how kind and gracious he is. Or think about a couple chapters later in Luke 18 when you have this picture, this parable of the, the Pharisees who's kind of on the mountain saying, God, I'm so thankful I'm not like this wretched sinner. I'm so thankful that, that I tithe and I do all the right things and, and I'm just a really good person. And then you have the tax collector stepping away, not, not presuming to come close to God's presence, on his knees, just crying out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognizes his, his sin. He recognizes that he is in need of God's mercy. It's these kind of portraits, it's these kind of pictures of who God is that causes us and leads us to repentance. You see, sin destroys us. Uh, sin separates us from the loving Father. It leads us to death. And repentance is turning away from that. It's turning away from that sin. It's turning away from those consequences so that we can have a richer fellowship with a benevolent king. We're therefore compelled to repent because it brings us to our gentle and lowly Savior. When we believe His character is all that it is, kind and gracious and for us, then we don't want anything to stand in the way of that, and sin stands in the way of that. So we repent of it. We turn away from it to bring us to Him. If there's any reluctance to turn from sin and go to God for mercy, it's due to our view of God, not His unwillingness to give grace. His kindness, however, doesn't always lead to repentance. Uh, why is that? It was, it was, that was the case here with the Jews. They experienced God's kindness more than any other nation, but they failed to repent. Why is that? What was missing? There are at least two interrelated reasons kindness doesn't automatically or in every case lead to repentance. The first, I think, is discerned from the context. The opening chapters of Romans are designed to convince us that all people are sinful, guilty, and justly condemned. In our passage today, the Jews failed to acknowledge their sin and guilt, which is why God's kindness failed to compel repentance. Right? They didn't feel the weight of their sin. They didn't realize the heaviness of their guilt and what it would lead to. As I mentioned earlier, the good news of the gospel is only desirable. It's only really good if you recognize the depth of your depravity and the misery of your destiny apart from God's grace. Thus, if you don't feel the weight of the guilt and truly believe that your sin deserves death, then God's kindness is trivial. It's a nice bonus, but not essential. On the other hand, if you're broken over your sin, grieved that it offends your heavenly Father, and fully aware that hell is your just punishment, then kindness is astonishing and life-transforming. When God's kindness meets godly sorrow, the result is repentance. Grace applied to guilt compels gratitude 
and godliness. When you understand that you deserve judgment, but you receive mercy, you're moved to turn from your sin and run to Christ. Ultimately, though, ultimately what prevents God's kindness from leading to repentance is a hard and stubborn heart, which will, in fact, be judged on the last day. Thus, the third and final necessity to avoid God's wrath is this. Point number three, you must have an accurate view of your future. We need an accurate view of our sin, of our God, and now of our future. Look at verse five. But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. A few things to observe and apply from this verse. First, verse 5 gives the second reason why God's kindness doesn't lead to repentance. It's because of their hard and impotent hearts. That's what it says. But because, there's the reason. It's meant to lead to repentance, but because of your hard heart, it doesn't. The problem is a stubborn and unrepentant heart. It's the root that produces self-deceived judging. It's the source of presuming upon God's kindness. All throughout the four Gospels, Jesus confronts the Pharisees for their hard heart and unbelief. Maybe you remember the scene in Mark chapter 3 where where Jesus is in the synagogue and, and he says directly to the Jews, it's as though he just looks right in their eyes and says, is it right for me to heal this, this crippled man on the Sabbath? And they just scorn and mock. And Jesus becomes angry and he's grieved that they're so caught up in their human traditions that they're not willing to, to extend compassion towards someone in need. It's because of their hardness of heart. Or later in chapter 7, excuse me, chapter 7, Jesus said to the Jews, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We could just turn page after page in the Gospels just of examples of how God's people, the Jews, their hearts were hard. They were unwilling to see their sin and their need for a Savior even when He was right in front of them. Earlier, Don read from Matthew 23, only a part of that section. The whole section there just rebukes the Pharisees and the Jews for their hypocrisy. And then did you notice there at the end, Jesus pleads for his people. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have loved to gather you to myself like hens to their mother but they were unwilling. In fact, they were so unwilling that their hardness of heart would lead to the the crucifixion of the Son of God. They would put to death their Messiah instead of recognizing their need for Him. Their hardness of heart exposed their unbelief. They didn't believe that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Of course, even as believers, you and I can experience hard hearts. Sin is deceitful and enticing, and every sin hardens the heart just a little. 
We can become too callous with sin, and we can, we can overlook so-called respectable sins. We can rationalize sin thinking that, you know, all that really matters is that I arrive in heaven, that, that, that I get to heaven in the end. But, but that's, that's not the kind of heart God is looking for. We're told in Colossians 3, 5 to 8, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. A soft heart, a regenerated heart desires to turn away from sin. Perhaps imperfectly, right? We're, we are in need of God's grace, but we don't celebrate it. We recognize that sin has consequences, including a gradual hardening of the heart. A soft and believing heart is cultivated by abiding in Christ. When we seek and set our minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, when we cling to gospel promises and when we guard our hearts with all vigilance, uh, then God's Word and His Spirit uh, keep our hearts are soft in returning to Him. Sure, we'll sin on occasion, but we'll quickly feel grieved by it, turn from it, and go to God. Well, next, verse 5 tells us the consequences of an unrepentant, hard heart, which is God's wrath. The refusal to admit sin, turn from sin, and trust in Christ results in storing up wrath for yourself. Presumptuous and pretentious Jews needed to hear that unless they repent, wrath awaits. That phrase, storing up wrath, it's ironic. In almost every other context in Scripture, that word storing up has a positive connotation, like you're storing up treasure, often referring to your, your storing up rewards for your good works. That's how the Jew would have commonly understood the word. But here it means storing up wrath for yourself at the future judgment because of unbelief. Uh, thankfully for Christians, Jesus Christ, if we've put our trust in Him and we are following Him, Jesus Christ has drank the bitter cup of God's wrath. And, and His blood covers all our sins. He was pierced for our transgressions, and we have life. We can approach the future with confidence and great expectations. However, if you're here this morning, and you haven't admitted your sin, acknowledged that you deserve God's just punishment and believed on Jesus Christ for forgiveness and for eternal life, then you too are storing up wrath for yourself there is hope. There's hope for all of us. Jesus lived a perfect life of obedience. He died a sacrificial death in our place. He rose from the grave in victory over death and sin so that anyone who trusts in Him and delights in Him will be saved. But we need to hear, as the Jews, that a refusal to repent stores up wrath, if not for ourselves, for our, our urgency to tell our family and our friends and our neighbors who remain with a hard heart and are just storing up wrath unless they turn in repentance so that wrath can be poured out on Christ instead of on them. Jesus' payment is indeed good news because verse 5 reminds us that the, there is a future reckoning when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. That the day of wrath there refers to the white throne judgment when God will separate the believers from the unbelievers on that day, his just verdict will not be overturned. 
his forbearance will have run out, and every person will be sentenced to an eternity of life and joy or an eternity of death and misery. No one will escape his judgment. Even Christians face God's judgment. Later in Romans 14, verse 10, it says, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Or 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You know, as Christians, we're saved from the white throne judgment, right? We don't bear any of the, the wrathful condemnation consequences for sin. All that was poured and absorbed fully by Christ, praise the Lord. But there's still, there's still a believer judgment at that time where we will be rewarded for our works. So though we don't anticipate judgment in the same way as an unbeliever, we still recognize that there is a day to stand before the judgment seat of God. So the question then becomes for all of us, do you have an accurate view of the future? And, and does your view of the future affect the way you live today? When you practice sin, presume upon God's kindness and live with a hard, unrepentant heart, you store up wrath for yourself for the future day of judgment. When, when you turn away from your sin and trust in Christ, you're promised a future of hope and joy and eternal life. More specifically, as we understand the text was written to unbelieving Jews, those who are hard-hearted for us Christians. And if you've put your faith in Christ, while we wait for that future day, we look to Christ. We look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow faint-hearted. This message has been um, maybe a little heavier, a little focused on the, this reality of wrath and judgment. Again, for believers, we return to this place where, where we, we recognize our sin, uh, we recognize um, who our God is, and we recognize what the future holds, and we can rejoice. We can take comfort the path to greater joy in Christ is to have an accurate view of your sin, your God, and your future. When you admit the depths of your depravity, when you admit the misery of your destiny apart from God's grace, then God's grace is so precious to you. And when you view God as your loving Father who has abundance of, and riches of kindness to give you, then you don't need to prove yourself or, or pity yourself you can go to Him and find His approval and your joy and your refuge in Him. Our hope and our joy is in our Savior. We can rest in Him without judging, without presuming, without guilt or fear. God's mercy is real, and it's yours in Christ. Let's continue to have this hope pressed upon our hearts. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, in a way, it feels like we were kind of eavesdropping in on a message intended for uh, the first century Jews, uh, but no doubt there is application here. Uh, there are words we need to hear. 
Uh, so, Father, I, I pray that it would be your work that does its work in each of our hearts. Uh, God, we, we recognize uh, that, that we are deeply flawed with sin and corruption. And then, were not your mercy and grace poured out on us, we would be hopeless and helpless. At the same time, we realize that in Christ we have all things. We have all the merits and blessings that are His, gifted to us, and we can rejoice. But Lord, we, because of that, we don't want to presume upon Your kindness. We, we don't want to move on from the gospel as though You have saved us and now we're free to live as however we want. May Your kindness lead us even to continually daily repentance, turning from sin, seeking our Savior more and more, more fervently, more zealously, because you are, you're so good, you're so kind, you've demonstrated your character. If you, having given your own Son, how will you not along with Him give us all things, Lord, we, we're just amazed by your grace. Continue to, to, to plumb the depths of your your grace, and pour out its riches into our life and our heart that would compel us to worship and to live for you and to long in anticipation for that day of, of the future. Not a day of wrath if we trust you, uh, but a day of celebration and worship, a day of feast. We, we long for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary North. For more information about our church, visit redemptioncalgarynorth.com.